This summer we are considering the major themes and events of God's epic story found in the pages of the Bible. Now we are drawn to epic stories in general, and the reason, I believe, is because we want to live lives that can be considered epic. Now most people try to live a personal story that's large enough to be considered epic, but even those who are pretty famous report back that it's still just never quite big enough. And that's because we were created to be a part of a story that's bigger than any one of us. We were created to be a part of God's epic story. And so as we tell the story of the Bible, we're not just telling events in history. We are doing that. But we're also looking at the themes about how we can fold the pieces of our story into the larger story that God is telling throughout creation. Now, the opening scene in the Bible is creation. And we looked, first of all, at Uh, The beauty that we see when we look out at creation, and that tells us that God is good. It doesn't have to be near this beautiful for it to work, but it is because God is good. He delights in beauty. And then we turn the attention and the message to us, humankind. When we look at ourselves, one of the things that's unique about us is we don't just have instincts. We have those, but we have the capacity and the need for relationships, unique among all the rest of creation. And this points to the fact that God is, is loving. He created us not only for relationships with each other, but for a relationship with him, because he is loving. But if you look out on this world now, you might wonder, now if God is so good and God is so loving, then why is there so much pain and evil in this world? And that's because of the second part of the epic story in the Bible is uh, how sin entered into the world. And from that point on, things began to, to unravel. They began to fall apart. Now, this didn't destroy all beauty. There's still a tremendous amount of beauty. But now mixed in with the beauty and mixed in with the good, there's, there's evil and there's twistedness. And then, rather than God deciding to just abandon this broken world to its natural decay, God chose a people early on to be a foundation from which he would bless the world, an opportunity to reestablish the relationship with him. And he chose Abraham to be the father of this new people. But early on, God's people found themselves in slavery in Egypt. So last week, we told the story of how God rescued them from slavery. After 430 years in Egypt, God rescued them. And Moses was the main character of that part of the epic story last week. We talked about how the rescue that God brought about is the template of an even larger rescue. The rescue, not just from slavery in Egypt, but from our slavery to sin. And so the question now is, well, what happens next in the epic story? Well, after Israel is rescued from Egypt, they go through a series of battles. Now, why couldn't the people of God just enjoy their newfound freedom? Why all of these battles right after they had been dramatically rescued from Egypt? Well, you see, in a fallen world, that is tainted by sin, it is never enough simply to declare freedom over and over again. If freedom is to be experienced, it must be fought for. I mean, just this past Tuesday, we celebrated as a nation the day back in 1776 when the Continental Congress declared the 13 colonies to be free from England. That day, though, did not usher in a period of peace. In fact, it continued a war that had started about a year earlier. That's because England wasn't about to say, oh, okay, you now wrote up a document and you have declared your independence and the 13 colonies have signed it, so all right, you must be free now. No, that, that, that freedom had to be fought for. And so for the next six years after the Declaration of Independence was signed, there, there were battles. There was the Revolutionary War that had to be won before the independence that had been declared on that day, on July 4th in 1776, before that, that declaration was experienced. But of course, that wasn't the last time for us as a nation where our freedom required a battle and a war in order for that freedom to be preserved. Again and again, we have had to fight for the freedom that was declared on July 4th, 1776. And it's really the same in our personal battles, in our own struggle with sin. You know, last Sunday I talked about how God can rescue us from 
the devastating and the eternal consequences of our sin. All we have to do is accept the terms of the freedom that Christ has offered, and we are declared free on that moment. But the enemy, who is the author of sin, isn't just about to say, oh, okay, you've decided to follow Christ. Now, you know, have a good life. I'm, I'm just going to step back. I'm going to give you the freedom that you have declared now in Christ. No, the moment we declare our freedom, Satan and his invisible army declares war on us. And if you are not prepared for this, if you're not aware of this, you will not experience the freedom from sin that you have declared. So the question I want to address this morning is, how do you fight these battles? Well, just as God's rescue plan from sin was first outlined in how he rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, the early lessons about this invisible battle and how to fight it are contained in the first two battles that Israel faced after their freedom from Egypt. The main character of this part of the story is Joshua. The two battles that we're going to look at are the battle of Jericho and the battle of Ai. Now, these two battles are a study in contrast. First of all, the two cities are very different in size and importance. Jericho was at a, a major hub and a trade route, and it was a pretty substantial city with tremendous defenses, very thick walls. Ai, by contrast, was very small. They had walls too, but they were nothing like Jericho's. And in the Battle of Jericho, the, the army was, of Israel was very different. The army in Jericho consisted primarily of seven priests. That's it. In the Battle of Ai, the army numbered 3,000 armed soldiers. And the weapons were very different. The weapons that were used in Jericho were trumpets, not normally considered unless you're in a neighborhood where someone is practicing the trumpet. It's not normally considered a weapon. But that's, that was the weapon that was used in Jericho. The weapon that was used in Ai was a more conventional weapon of the day, and that was swords. Now, you add this up, and the outcome is pretty obvious. You don't even have to be a military mind to say, well, I can see how this is going to go. But you know, it didn't work out the way you thought. You would think it would be defeat in Jericho and victory in Ai, but the opposite happened. Jericho was a complete and total victory, and Ai was a defeat. Why? What happened? Well, first, let's look at the Battle of Jericho. Joshua, the leader of Israel at the time, was scouting Jericho's defenses when an unidentified soldier approaches him. So Joshua asks him to identify which side of the conflict he is on. This is what we read in Joshua 5, verse 14. Neither, he replied, but as a commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down on the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The angel of God gave Joshua the strangest military plan ever devised. This is the plan. The soldiers are to march quietly around the city walls with seven priests leading the way. Seven priests lead the way. They are to, to just march around the wall silently. They're to do this once a day for six days. Then on the seventh day, they are to ratchet up this tremendous attack by marching around the wall seven times. And not only that, while they are marching around the wall seven times, the priests are to be not just carrying trumpets, they are to be blowing these trumpets as they march around the wall seven times. And after the seventh circuit around the city is complete, the, the priests are to stand there at the end of that final circuit and blow a long blast on the trumpet, all seven of them. And at that point, the army that has been silently marching behind them for seven days is to let out a loud shout. And at that point, this angel, the commander of the Lord's army, says the walls will fall down and the city will surrender. Now, I'd love to have the video of Joshua's reaction to this plan. Oh, all right, okay. Yeah, I've not, I've not 
I'm not aware of those tactics. I haven't heard of this plan before, but okay, sounds good. But you see, this is exactly what happened. This is exactly what the people of God did. And it happened exactly as the angel of God said it would. Tremendous victory. Next was the battle of Ai. This one was different from the beginning. Now, before Jericho, the people of God had gathered both to worship God and to cry out to God and ask for his help. But after Jericho, well, they were brimming with confidence. I mean, if we just march around and blow trumpets and the walls fall down, we got this next one. And so they skipped this part, this worshiping God and praying and asking God for help in advance. They just skipped that part. They went straight to the battle plan and then straight into battle. And it was a disaster. Why? Well, that's what Joshua wanted to know. So he asked God. It's interesting. Now Joshua had had time to pray. You know, I understand. This is often the way we are. And we rush into life, and we just don't have the time to pray and ask God. And and then when things unravel, now it's like, oh, uh, God, what's going on? This is what Joshua did. God said that the reason for the defeat in Ai was because someone in Israel had sinned. A man by the name of Achan, A-C-H-A-N, had taken some of the plunder from Jericho and hidden it in his tent. Now, taking plunder was not unusual. In fact, that was, that was, com- that was a common practice of war. You know, to the victor go the spoils. But God had strictly forbidden this for Israel. Why? Well, you see, these these battles were not just about land and money and power like most wars are. This was about God's judgment on these people and these cities. You see, for centuries, God had warned them to stop worshiping their false gods and their idols and stop sacrificing their innocent children to these false gods. I mean, these these practices were atrocious. But they had refused. Now, God is slow to anger. I mean, centuries had gone by, and God had not brought judgment. But eventually, even God has had enough. He's seen enough. And if the people of Israel begin to take plunder like every other people and every other army have always done in every war, then it would say that this is just another war. This is about money. This is about land. This is about power, when it wasn't. So because of this one sin, the army of 3,000 soldiers was defeated. So what is the point of this story? What What can we learn from this today? Well, here I think is the major point. There is more going on in this world than the battles that we can see. There's more going on. You see, the bigger battle is won by priests and trumpets. And the smaller battle is lost by the sin of one man. Why? Well, it's because the invisible realm carries more weight than the visible realm. That's not the way we tend to think. You see, what we see, and particularly the struggles that we find ourselves involved in now, they're not just the result of natural causes and effects. They are, in part, a result of that. But they're also a result of the supernatural causes, the invisible factors that we can't see with our eyes. You see, if the natural world was all there was, all there is, then seven trumpets could never bring down the walls of Jericho. And if the natural world is all that matters, then one sin would have absolutely no effect on a superior army. But you see, God was saying, no, it it is the, the invisible war that is going on that you can't see that is animating the visible stuff, the visible struggles, the visible conflict. In the New Testament, this is summarized best, I think, in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 12, when it says, put on the full armor of God 
so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. You can't see the enemy, not this one. For our struggle is not, it's not just physical. It's not just visible. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers, against the armies, against the powers of this dark world. This is describing military-like structures under Satan. And against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We can't see this. But there, from what this says, appears to be a very highly organized and highly structured army that is opposed to the things of God. You see, when we struggle in life, we think that the enemy is, is visible. That's as far as we tend to see. We think that, well, maybe it's the person that we are arguing with or having a conflict with right now. That's the enemy. Or with the boss that we are stuck working with. Or with the person that we are married to. Or with the difficult situation that we are facing. That's the enemy. That's the conflict. That's the battle that we are struggling with, the visible one. But what this is saying is that the real enemy is invisible. And he and his forces are at work in the middle of every flesh and blood struggle that we have. Now their objective is very clear. Satan and his vast demonic army are at work advancing their objective, which is what? Their primary objective is to separate us, to separate you, to separate me from God. Now and then for all eternity. To drive a wedge between us. To convince us that he isn't real or he isn't good or he's not worth following or it doesn't really matter. A number of ways. So that we might just live our life in separation from him and then slip into eternity in separation from him. That's their objective. Now to advance this objective, the enemy deploys several schemes. This talks about the schemes of the enemy, of the devil. Now a scheme is not just one move. It's not just one thought. A scheme is a a multi-part and usually multi-leveled and, and, and many-phased plan. And it's implemented over time. So to counter each of these schemes, God has given the Christian, those who have decided to declare their freedom in Christ, he has given the Christian specific pieces of spiritual armor. And in these verses, it goes on to describe what those pieces of armor are. Here's the description in Ephesians 6, 14 through 18. Stand firm then. You know, in this invisible battle, stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Now, in these verses, we're not just given a list of spiritual armor. What we're really given is the enemy's battle plan, the tactics, the schemes. Remember back in verse 11, it says, put on the full armor of God. Why? So that you can take your stand against the enemy's schemes. What that means is that each piece of armor is designed specifically to counter one of the enemy's schemes. So if you kind of reverse engineer this, if you, if you consider what the particular piece of armor does, then you can identify the scheme, the enemy's scheme that it's designed to counter, to protect you from. And when you look at it this way, and this has been more helpful for me than just trying to imagine what these pieces of armor are, it's, it's, it's what are these for and then how are they used? There are six basic enemy schemes that I want to go over this morning. Now, the circumstances of your particular struggle, of all of our struggles, it's going to differ. You know, what the terrain of the physical terrain looks like and the situation of life, it's all going to be different. 
But you and I will battle these six. In the middle of whatever the struggle is, we will battle these six again and again and again. And if you don't know what these are and you're not prepared to counter them, well, you're easy pickings. You're going to fall. You're not going to stand in those days. So let's look at them. Scheme number one is confusion. And by the way, on this screen, I'm going to put a lot of information. And so you note takers, just calm down. Don't try to take all of these notes. If you're, doing, if you're going through the listing guide, you can just fill in the blank with confusion on this. What I'm going to do for each six of these, I'm going to post these online in PDF form. So you can go if, in the place where on, the, on our website, you can listen to the message. You can then download these PDFs. Okay, so just relax. I want you to listen and pay attention, not just, what was the word? Oh, no, we went to the next screen. Oh, no. We don't want to cause more struggle. We're trying to help you with struggles this morning. So we're going to post these online. Okay, so scheme number one is confusion. Now, why would Satan want to confuse us? Well, just militarily speaking, that's a common tactic. To confuse the enemy, to, to, to throw the opposition into turmoil. Well, that, there's a tremendous advantage in that. But you see, when it comes to separating us from God, lies are probably the best weapon that can be used. If we can get confused about who God is and who we are and what's really going on right now, well, then the, the battle is pretty much won at that point in that particular struggle. So what the enemy does is he authors lies. Jesus called Satan the father of lies. Now, there are a lot of children writing a lot of lies, but they all have one father. So Satan is continually manufacturing ideas about God, about this world, about us, that just aren't true. Now, they resonate sometimes with us, but they're just not true. So the enemy is continually lying to our minds and also lying to our emotions, the way we feel. Sometimes you feel something that has no connection with reality. And it, it's usually because the enemy just wanted to get you all tripped up in an emotional, emotional tornado. So he'll lie to your, your mind and he'll lie to your emotions. Now, the counter to this scheme is the piece of armor called the belt of truth. Now, the belt was the, the combat vest of the ancient soldier. You know, the combat vest now is kind of the thing that, that all of the, the weapons of the modern soldier are attached to. And if the combat vest or if the belt is loose, well, then you, you can't get to any of the other weapons. And in ancient times, if the belt was loose, well, you, you just couldn't move. You, you couldn't get your weapon. You, you, you just would fall down. You know, the battle was over really before it began. So the lies of Satan need to be countered. And they can't be countered just by your own thoughts and my own thoughts. We don't have the ability to say, I don't think that's true. Well, we can do that, but we're not usually right. The lies of Satan can only be countered by God's word. That's the truth. So how is the armor used? How is the belt of truth used practically? Well, you have to ask yourself, what does the Bible say about what you are thinking and feeling? If you find yourself struggling, sit down, stop, pause for just a moment, and, and try to figure out, what am I thinking? What am I feeling? Sometimes, for me, it's been just helpful to just take five minutes and write it down. So often, we just kind of feel and think things, and we don't even analyze what it is. We just kind of move through life, feeling and thinking and not being aware of it. But ask yourself, what, what am I thinking? What am I feeling? And then ask, is it true? Find out what the Bible says on this. Ask, what, what does God's word say on this? And get a firm grip on what's true. You know, cinch up the belt, cinch up the combat vest. If you got a loose idea of what is true or you don't have any idea of what is true in this area, you're going to really struggle for much longer than you need to. So that's scheme number one. It's just the fog of war, confusion. 
Scheme number two is accusation. In fact, this is what Satan's name means. The word Satan means accuser. God gave him a name that basically says what he does. The enemy is continually reminding us of our sin. Now, unfortunately for all of us, he's got a lot of material to work with. So he's continually accusing us. You're not good enough. You can't do this. Who do you think you are? Don't you remember what you just did? You just said that. He's accusing us. Now, the counter to this scheme is the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate protected the ancient soldier from a kill shot. I mean, it protected, we went right over here, protected all of the vital organs. And sin is the spiritual kill shot that separates us from God. And Jesus is our breastplate. He is our righteousness. His righteousness is the only answer to our sin. So how do you use this piece of armor? Well, two two things. First of all, recognize that the righteousness of Christ is your defense. Whenever you're accused, what's your first response? To defend yourself. Nuh-uh. No, I didn't either. Or to blame somebody else. That's really a defensive move. Well, it's really your fault. I'm the victim here. But none of those tactics really answer the accusations of the enemy. You, no matter how many good things you've done, no matter how much you try to justify what you've done, no matter how much you try to blame other people for what you've done, the fact is that you and I have sinned. We have done wrong. And so our own righteousness is inadequate in protecting ourselves from these accusations. The answer is, that's, that's right. I did that. I am not perfect. Far from it. And that's why I have put on the righteousness of Christ. I have decided to exchange my sinful life for the perfect life of Christ and take his offer. And so the reason I can move forward in the future with confidence is not because I'm someone amazing, but because Jesus is. And that's my breastplate. That's what's protecting me. So you put on the breastplate of Christ. And then the second thing is you run from temptation towards what is right. What tends to happen sometimes is this thought, you know, while you've already messed up a bunch of times anyways, you might as well just, you know, run the table. Go all the way with this because you've already failed. See, that's a lie. The, the truth is at any point in time, no matter how much, much you've messed things up, from this moment forward, you can turn around and orient yourself towards what God says is right, and you can begin to move that way. And you put on the breastplate of righteousness, and you say, you know what? That was true, but right now, I'm going to turn away from that, and I'm going to move this direction. That may have been true of me three seconds ago, but not now. I'm moving this way. You're putting on the breastplate of righteousness. That's the answer to accusation. Scheme number three is division. Satan wants to cause turmoil between us and our relationships. So he stirs up all kinds of thoughts and feelings of conflict towards one another. You know, there's nothing better than everyone being upset with each other. A lot of times people just spend their entire life just being upset with other people. The enemy's tickled pink about that. Yeah, just waste your entire life being mad at people. Don't even think about me. Don't even think about God. Just, just get mad. So he stirs up conflict, division. The counter to this scheme is the shoes of peace. Now, shoes are a critical part of any battle. Many battles have been lost because the feet of the soldiers had inadequate footwear, either for the terrain or for the climate. Shoes allow a soldier to quickly counter the movements of the enemy. And so as the enemy moves to to cause division between us and the people around us. We counter that move of conflict with two moves of peace. So how, how do you use this armor? These are the two moves. First of all, be quick to share the gospel. This piece of armor is actually called the shoes of the gospel of peace. 
The gospel, the word gospel simply means good news. It's, it's talking about the good news that I referred to last week about how Jesus is offering to exchange his life for our sinful life. And therefore, the gospel is how, how we make peace with God. Until we can make peace with God, we are going to really struggle to make peace with other people. That's where peace begins. As people latch onto the good news and they make peace with God, then peace begins to spread. So we have to be quick to take up the opportunity to help people understand how they can be made right with God, how peace with God can be arrived at. And then the second move is be quick to clear up relationships. You know, be quick to, to talk about what the conflict is and to ask for forgiveness in the places where you've been wronged and then to forgive. Scheme number four is discouragement. Satan wants just to, to take our, our heart out, just to take our will to, to keep struggling and moving forward away from us. And to do so, he shoots what Scripture refers to here in the verses I read, flaming arrows. What's a flaming arrow? Well, a flaming arrow is devastating circumstances that just keep getting worse. You know, an arrow is, oh, oh, that was an awful circumstance. A flaming arrow is, oh, that was awful, and oh, 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 it just keeps getting worse. Now the fire spreads. It's a flaming arrow. The counter to this scheme is the shield of faith. When the arrows fly of devastating circumstances, we must move faith into place by declaring our trust in God in the middle of the difficulty. How do we do this? Well, I, I have some precise words. You can reword this some if you want. These are some words that were given to me decades ago, and they've been so helpful. In response to harm, when, when difficulty and when your world's on fire, say this. God is good. He has a plan. He will not rip me off. What I mean by that is I know that I will look back on my life from the perspective of eternity, and I will not be able to say, well, that was a ripoff. I should have never decided to follow Christ. No, I'll look back and say, that was the best decision I ever made. God's not going to rip me off. Now, it looks pretty bad right now. The deal does not look sweet right now, but I just I don't see everything right now. I don't see the plan. I don't see the perspective of eternity. And so right now, in faith, not in sight, but in faith, I'm going to hold up the shield and say, God's good. He has a plan. He's not going to rip me off. Scheme number five is giving up. You know, as the discouragement mounts, Satan just wants us to quit. Quit on your marriage. Quit on your kids. Quit on your responsibilities. Quit on God. So he gets us to forget that we follow a God who saves. See, the counter to this scheme is the helmet of salvation. Now, the ancient helmet not only served the purpose of protecting the head, like all helmets still do, but one of the major purposes of the helmet in the ancient armies of this time was that it carried the insignia of the army. It, it helped soldiers identify which army they were with. So often on the top of the helmet, you would see the decorations and the colors of the particular army. And so as the armies would march forward and as they came over the horizon, you could see, oh, that's a friendly force. That's an enemy force. You could see the identifying marks, the insignia. So what this is saying in major part is our identifying insignia is what? Salvation. This is the helmet of the people whom God has saved and will continue to save. That's what identifies us. That's what marks us. God will save us. No matter how bad it gets, he will come to our rescue. Our part is to not break, break rank and run away, desert. It's to keep moving forward and not give up. So how do, how do we apply this armor? How do we use it? Well, two things. First of all, nail down that you're, you're in this force. Nail down that you are actually saved. 
that Jesus is, in fact, your Lord, the boss of your life and your Savior. Now, this does not mean nail down the fact that you're perfect. Nobody can nail that down. Nail, just nail down the fact that, you know what? I did come to the point when I bowed the knee of my heart to Jesus and I asked him to run my life. I don't do it perfectly, but I keep, that's the compass setting of my life. And he is my Savior. So just nail on the fact that you've actually put this helmet on and you do wear this insignia. And then secondly, here's something else I'd recommend that you say. Now, by the way, a note on these things you say. If you can say them out loud, that's helpful. Don't do it in a crowd, that's weird. But if, if you can get away and, and say them, I think it's just helpful to remind yourself of this. But you may just be in a situation where you just need to say this under your breath. But say this, I serve the God who has saved and will save me, I will not quit on my commitments. Just saying that is so helpful. It helps you just stay in the march, moving forward. Scheme number six is silence. You know, the primary weapons in this battle are made of words. Words are the ammunition of this invisible battle. God's words to counter the lies of the enemy, and your words, my words, words of prayer asking God for help. And so Satan wants us to be silent. His word to us, if we could hear it audibly, would just be, just shut up and sit down. Don't cry out for help. Don't learn any words out of the Bible and use them. Now, you're welcome to have a gun, just don't put any bullets in it. Don't use any words. Now, to counter this scheme, we use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. What that means is we swing the sword of the Spirit when we use the words of God out of the Bible to fit the situation that we are facing right now. This is why it's important for us to learn what God says. It's, you're stocking up on ammunition for the real struggle of life. So how do we do this? Well, we apply God's word to the situation that you're in. If you don't know, ask someone. See if you could borrow a box of ammunition from them. They may know some verses. They may know some words that you don't. And then use your words to pray for help. Just the act of stopping and saying, God, would you help me? What you're doing at that point is you're saying, you know, there's more going on right here than whatever's going on at work and whatever's going on in my marriage and whatever's happening with my kids and whatever's going on with me financially and whatever's happening medically. There's more going on here. You're opening your, yourself up to the invisible battle that is driving this visible struggle. And then use your words to pray. Now, I know this is a lot of information. That's why we're going to put it on the website. I hope you can download this and use it. But the question that you might have is, so how does this look in real life? I mean, how do you do this in the flow of life? So I wanted to give you um, an example from my own life, a personal example, just over the last few months. The week of Easter, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Now, it's stage two, which means that it's contained in my prostate, which is good. It is throughout my prostate, though, which is not good. So, in two and a half weeks, on July 26th, I'm going to have surgery to have it removed. Now, when I was talking to the surgeon about this about a month or so ago, I said, so how long is the recovery? And he held up his finger to indicate one. So I said, one week? He said, no, 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 one month. One month. So I'm going to be out of commission for a month. And from a physical flesh and blood perspective, there's really not much more to say. I mean, the odds are good. The surgery is routine. I mean, you, you guys know prostate cancer is not unheard of for guys. And those are the facts. So the question is, why haven't I been able to stick to just the facts and be okay with that? Well, that's because I'm like you. And like you, my struggles are not just one-dimensional flesh and blood struggles. That's why I've, I've had all kinds of thoughts and all kinds of emotions swirling inside of me over the past two months. And that's why, you know, the medical odds, you know, that's what the medical community can do. Well, here's the odds that you have of living this long. Oh, I feel really good now. 
That's why the medical odds or the stories of others who have gone through this, while helpful, have not been enough to calm me on the inside. Now, granted, on the surface, I appear fine. I'm, I'm sure all of you had, you know, you had no idea. I mean, leaders here at Seabreeze knew about this, but I haven't gone public with this until now. And I doubt that if you happened to be here on Easter that any of you could have told that I had just received this news. No, I, I, I put on a good front. I'm like you. We all do this. That's how we all are. You know, we all look together on the outside. And sometimes if you're struggling, you may look around you and say, gosh, I must be the, the worst person in the world. I'm the only one struggling. Oh, no, 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 no. You're like everyone else. You got it together on the outside. On the surface, things appear fine, but on the inside, we're all doing battle. The problem is that when it comes to this invisible war, we tend to act like civilians, which is what war? And so the armor of God just lays it on the ground, and we spend our days being driven all over the map emotionally and mentally. It's whichever way the circumstances blow today, then whoo, where our mind and our emotions are going to be there. And then, like Joshua in the Battle of Ai, we think that our power and the abilities that we have will be adequate to handle the struggles of life, only to discover that it's the invisible war that drives the visible one, and that we are not adequate. In the last two months, I have fought every one of these six schemes, every one of these battles, repeatedly, so let me give you a little window into what it's looked like on the inside for me. Confusion. Oh, I've been confused. My mind and my emotions sometimes have been all over the place. And it is the truth of God's Word that has been the only thing to settle me down and to give me a firm grasp on something solid. One of the things I've been doing is reading through the book of Psalms. I won't put this verse on the screen, but you can look it up later. Psalm 39, 4 says this, Show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. Now, that may sound like a really odd, encouraging verse to you. Basically, it's saying, God, remind me I'm going to die. Well, this has been a reminder to me of something that's true of all of us. We are going to die. But in our culture, oh, that is the last thing that we ever want to think about. We spend so much time and so much money trying to distract ourselves from that reality. And what I've discovered is the fact that I'm going to die. You know, that's what the big, the C, the cancer word does. It's like, you're going to die. Maybe not of this, but you're going to die. That has been so focusing for me. Because the question then is, if I'm going to die, what do I do? Do I spend the rest of my life just, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm leaving, I'm, I've got a bucket list this long, and I'm just going to travel the world doing my bucket list. Really, is that why I'm here? Do I think that I'm going to see anything here on earth that won't be more amazing from heaven? No, I, I'm here to do God's work. You are too. So this has helped me focus. Okay, so, reminder. My life is fleeting. What am I going to do with however many years I've got left? It's been so helpful. And I've struggled with accusing thoughts. You know, I've, I've thought many times, maybe this is happening because of some sin in my past. And like you, I, I got plenty. So I've had to pick up the breastplate of righteousness and say this. I don't know why this is happening. If it's because of some sin in the past, that's been forgiven. Not because I've earned enough to counter that, but because I've taken on the breastplate of the righteousness of Christ. I've had to remind myself, that's, that's my protection, not my good works. And you know, I have been more irritable over the last two months, truth be told. <laughs> and division has popped up more and more. You know, whenever you're under pressure, people just are more irritating. They don't change, you have. 
But the enemy's trying to just stir up division with those I work with, with at home. And I have again and again had to strap on the shoes of peace and rush to clear up that relationship. And here, the fourth one, I've I've spent more time than I should wallowing in self-pity. You know, in the later parts of the night, sometimes when I can't sleep at night, my mind starts thinking and I think thoughts like, you know, after the seven eye surgeries that I had over the past two years, now this. What's up, God? Why me? And I've had to pick up the shield of faith. And with my mouth, say, God, I'm going to trust you no matter how bad it gets. Now, I know my life isn't as bad as many other lives, but you know that, that comparison thing is just pointless. Okay, so someone else in the world is having it worse than you. How weird is that 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 makes you feel better? I mean, your life is your life. And right now, I'm not loving it. And it's not the first time, won't be the last. But how many times do you pick up the shield of faith? I mean, if, if, if you're a soldier in an ancient army, and your decision is, I'm going to use it once, well, you're dead. Because how, how many arrows will be shot? A bunch. Circumstances are going to keep flying. Every time, you've got to pick up the shield of faith and say, God, you are good. You have a plan. You're not going to rip me off. I'm going to trust you. And then number five, I've been tempted to quit. Now, truthfully, not outright, but kind of quit on the inside. You know, people can stay in their jobs and stay in their marriages and still kind of quit on the inside, can't they? And that's been my temptation. You know, just, just kind of pull back on leading Seabreeze. Pull, pull back on my marriage. Not quit, not walk away. Just stop working so hard. I've had to put on the helmet of salvation and remember that I am marching in a vast army against the forces of the enemy. And I'm marching in the army that is marked with the insignia of the one who saves. That's who we are. We've been saved. We've seen God come through for us again and again and again. And we just got to stay in rank. I've remembered how God has saved me in the past. And I have to decide again to wait for him to save me again. And then silence. There's a verse in Psalm 79 that talks about the writer of the psalm says when he was upset with God, he says this phrase, he says, I was as a brute beast before you, God. You know what a brute beast is? Just look at the face of a cow. That's a brute beast. Cows aren't very expressive, are they? I mean, they're just like, they don't say much. Every once in a while they grunt, they moo. And so I was, I've been tempted to be a brute beast before God, which basically means I'm mad. I'm not talking to you. You just kind of be a brute beast. But you know, the most helpful tool of the battle for me, this personal battle for me, has been prayer. I've been reading through the Psalms, as I said, and I found it very helpful to use the words of the Psalms to form and expand the vocabulary of my prayers to God. And as I've prayed to God, boy, he's really helped in the battle. So this is just some of what I have been struggling with on the inside. And I give you this window into my life, not so that you might feel bad for me. you got your own stuff. That's why I want to show you. You've got your own battles. And if I heard your story, I might think, oh, <laughs> that's worse than mine. But again, that's not the point. We don't compare struggles. We fight struggles. And I want you to fight your struggles. 
with a full awareness of what you're really fighting and the tools that God, the weapons that God has given you to fight these battles. You know, Osama bin Laden is the one that really authored the war that our country is in right now, the war on terror. At least he was the figurehead before he was, was killed. And Osama bin Laden said something that was interesting after 9-11. He said, you know, because one of the big arguments is how terrorists kill civilians. And Osama bin Laden said, there is no such thing as a civilian in this war against the West. There, there are no civilians. And when I heard that, I thought, you know, that's, that's exactly what Satan thinks. In his invisible war, there are no civilians. What this means is, you can't pull a Switzerland and declare neutrality in this one. That's not an option for you. You can't say, you know what, I'm just going to sit this one out. The forces of good and evil, you guys go for it. I'm, I'm just going to sit here and live in luxury. You can't do that. You are in this war whether you believe it, it's real, or exists or not. And frankly, Satan would prefer that you don't believe it. I mean, every... Military conflict, secrecy is the, the biggest advantage of all. Satan loves nothing more than the civilian mindset. And so while you pursue a comfortable, affluent life, he can sneak up on you one struggle at a time and eventually make you his for all of eternity. Not in a big move, but in a multi-year, multi-layered, strategic move full of all kinds of schemes. So I want these words echoing in your mind, so let me read them to you again. Ephesians 6.11. Put on, don't just let it sit there, put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the enemy's schemes. Let's pray. Father, we close our eyes because it's just a way to recognize that what we cannot see is even far more important than the things we can. Now, the things we can see and we deal with are very real, but it's the invisible matters, the truth versus the lies, the opposition versus you that really animate what goes on in our life and then in eternity. So we thank you for giving us this intelligence, giving us this briefing, and giving us these armor pieces. I pray that you would help us not only just nod today, maybe in agreement with this, but to learn how to struggle. Remind us when we face a struggle this week that there's more going on than just the struggle. Oh, we do need to deal with the struggle that we see, but there's more going on in our hearts. Give us insight into this. Protect us from the schemes of the enemy. Help us to be faithful in this battle. Keep us from quitting. We thank you for your breastplate of righteousness. Without it, boy, we'd be dead. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.